Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were, were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. May be seated if you haven't already. Would you uh, pray with me as we get ready? Spirit of the living God, I feel... Um, I just feel particularly aware of my own need for you this morning. I feel like I need your words and your story and your comfort, your grace and your guidance. And so, God, would you just be present to us? Would you be present to me as I deliver this message? And would you be present to our community as they hear it and as they gather at the table and as they continue to sing your songs? Would we be present to your presence? We pay attention to what it is you're doing and what it is you're saying and the ways you're moving here in this place right now, but maybe even more particularly in the places outside of here. When we leave here and go home and gather at our tables or spend time with our friends or go to work on Monday, would we be uniquely attentive to the way in which you are present there, waiting for us to arrive? already ahead of us. So God, be with us this morning. Lead us, guide us. And thank you that you do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are starting a new series. Last week we wrapped up our series exploring the parable of the prodigal sons, talking about how do we talk about the gospel. And today we're beginning a, a new series that will carry us for the next couple of weeks into the season of Advent or up to the season of Advent. And you could call this series, um, I think what you would have it called in some churches is you could call it a vision series. And in some ways it is a vision series. We'll talk about where we're going as a community, the direction and orientation of our life together. 
But I think it would be more appropriate to call the series we're about to enter into an identity series. The question I'm more interested in asking than where are we going is, who are we? Who are the people of God, and what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the church? What are the practices, the habits, the DNA, the lifeblood of a community of people that say they are centered on the person of Jesus, that gather at the table and call themselves the church? What does it mean to be us, a community of faith? What is our identity? And we're going to call this series The Missio Day. I know you can see it. And the astute observer will be familiar with that name, the Missio Dei. Uh, if you didn't know, it is our name, the church that you're attending right now. <laughs> and more than being our name, though, we didn't just do this series because we're like, people really need to remember where they are. That's not the reason we called it the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei is a theological idea. It's a truth that we see arriving in the Bible. It's a hope. It's a promise. The Missio Dei means the mission of God, and within that phrase is this expectation, this hope, this promise that God is on mission, that the creator of the universe is on the move, that God is up to something in the universe around us, that God is bringing about something new, that God is healing something, that God did not just begin a work once upon a time and then leave it to be, but that that work continues, that mission is ongoing, and that we as the church are invited to participate in God's mission. This is also the reason I'm hesitant to call our series a vision series, because in many ways the church has a pretty clear vision all throughout the story of the Bible. Jesus is pretty clear about why he's forming a people together, and the writers of the New Testament are pretty clear about what that people are supposed to do. Now, there's unique expressions of it in every age, so that could be what our vision is. But we know that as a community of faith, united in the person of Jesus, we are called to join God's renewing work all around us. That God is on a mission to bring about the renewal of all things, and we as the people of God who have been empowered by the Spirit are invited to participate in God's work. In our individual community, we have unique expressions of it. In this community and in your own lives, there are unique expressions of it because you are unique. And because you make this place unique. And so therefore, our vision gets to look unique, but we're on the same mission, same vision that God has been up to for a long, long time. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this idea, joining God in the renewal of all things. We'll do it for six weeks, and throughout this series, we'll talk about what is God's mission, what is God doing in the world, and how do we participate in that mission? Because it can feel a bit ethereal and abstract to talk about renewal of all things. Like, that's a big phrase that can mean a lot of things. So we'll talk about what it is, what it means, how we participate in that vision. But today, the thing I want to do is just name a handful of big ideas or important truths that set the stage for this conversation. The foundational ideas of our mission and identity as a community. And nothing that I say today will be that new. I don't think so, at least. I don't think anything I say will blow your mind. 
I don't think that it will change your life necessarily. I think these are things you're familiar with for the most part. Ideas that we believe at some level, theories that we hold to at some level. But the question that I would like us to ask today is, do we really believe them? They are truths that I think we utter a lot, we say a lot. I think every one of us would affirm them to be true. But the question is, do we really believe them? Do we experience them as true? Do we practice them as true? The Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard, who is a Christian author uh, who writes a lot of just beautiful books about nature and the environment, she has this quote that I think sums up the, the question I'm asking so beautifully, and she says it this way. She says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what, a, what sort of power we so blithely evoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Our churches are children playing on the floor with chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats. I don't see any velvet hats here today, but you get the idea. Instead, we should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return again. And I love the poetry of what she has just said, but the question I think is deeply provocative and challenging. Do we believe that God is actually on the move in the world around us? And do we believe that something might happen if we were to encounter or participate with that God's work around us? So that's the question. And to get us there, here's a couple of foundational truths. Big ideas that will guide us today and then will guide us in the weeks to come. And here's the first one, which we've already articulated in different ways. The first one is this. We believe God is on the move. The civil rights leader and pastor Clarence Jordan, who began a farm called Koinonia Farm, which was like a, he called it an experiment of the kingdom. And the whole purpose of Koinonia Farm was for folks of different color to live together. They were regularly bombed, regularly shot at. But he said, we are trying to plant seeds of this thing God is doing. And Clarence Jordan, when he was trying to describe this thing that God was doing in the world, he would often translate the phrase kingdom of God into God movement, which is an idea that I love. I love kingdom language. I think there's so much beauty in kingdom language, but movement language also captures something that I think is important for us to understand, that God is on the move. That God is at work continuously building, establishing, healing, unraveling, and transforming the world around us. That The thing we're doing here and now did not begin with us, and it didn't just start sometime before and stop, but that we are participants and agents in something that is ongoing, that is continuing and moving in the world around us. Now, I think at one level, we all believe that to be true as an idea, 
But belief is different than practice. And knowledge is different than experience. I think this dynamic is at play in Acts chapter 2, the text that Amanda read for us this morning. The disciples are waiting for something to happen in the upper room in Jerusalem. And it's a really uncomfortable position to find yourself in if you're the disciples in this moment. Like we love the moment that the church begins, but right before the church begins, the disciples are about 120. They're waiting for something to happen in an upper room as they pray and wait and nervously expect something. But it's an uncomfortable situation because Jesus has just ascended, so he's not there. The person that they're following, the, the king that they have unified around, is no longer with them physically. The Spirit has not yet arrived, and they're just in liminality, in uncertainty. And the odds are not in their favor, right? Their Messiah has been killed. Now, yes, he's been resurrected, but he left them alone for a second. Rome is still in control. The empire that killed their Messiah is still in control. It's still the dominant force in the world around them. So when they leave the upper room, they still contend with an empire. And the religion of the day, the religion that they come from, the religion that their families come from, is not the biggest fan of them. And so if you're a disciple in Acts chapter 2 before the Spirit arrives, I feel like you have to be looking at the situation and wondering, what are we doing here? We can't build a movement out of this. We can't save the world out of this. We can't establish the kingdom of God out of this situation we find ourselves in. We're just 120 waiting in an upper room alone, afraid to go outside to see what's happening. If I could be honest with you, I resonate with that feeling so deeply. I don't know how often you look at the world around you and wonder, what you could possibly do about it. It doesn't even have to be the world around you. I often look at uh, just this situation, our church, and I'm like, what in the world am I supposed to do about these people? <laughs> I don't know. Or I just look at my own life. The difficulty and the struggles and the frustration and the wins and the victories, and I... I'm so often confused about what am I supposed to do with this situation? I feel powerless to change it. I feel powerless to make it better sometimes. And in many ways, that is true. And the good news is that we don't have to do that by ourselves. God is on the move. And while waiting in the upper room, afraid of what is to come next in this story, the Spirit arrives and falls on the disciples. And the Spirit does what Jesus promised, clothes them with power from on high. God moves into the uncertainty and into the liminality and into the confusion of their moment. God acts. And this is always the pattern of how God moves throughout the story of the Bible. Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and what happens? God moves towards Adam and Eve. In the wreckage of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, God moves towards Abraham to form a people. In the slavery of Egypt, God moves. In the destitution of exile, God moves. In the person of Jesus, God moves. 
In uncertainty and uncontrollability and in dislocation, God always moves first, arriving into that uncertainty to create something new. And that is really good news. But it is also very uncomfy news, if we can just be honest. It's very good news, but very uncomfy news. Because look at what happens next in Acts. The Spirit falls, the disciples are empowered by the Spirit, they run into the streets, and then the very first thing that happens is not that people meet Jesus, it is not that something miraculous appears to be happening, it is instead this. All the people who heard the disciples were surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying, they're full of wine. This accusation gained so much momentum that Peter stood up with the other 11 apostles, raised his voice, and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem know this. Listen carefully. What's the first thing that he says? These people are not drunk. Can you imagine? Can I just hold on a second? If I finish this sermon and I walk off the stage and someone's like, Is he drunk? Something went bad. <laughs> I don't know that you would have me do it again. You'd be like, we need to like, check him in somewhere, have a meeting with him, we're going to call Heather, we're going to get the elders involved. It's not just Peter, it's all the disciples. They're like, are they all? What happened here? God arrives into the uncertainty, into the liminality, into their dislocation, and it does not look like anyone would have expected. And if we can be honest it does not look like anyone would have wanted. No one wants to be accused of drunk on their first missions trip. <laughs> the disciples don't come off in this moment looking respectable. They don't come out of this moment looking holy. They don't come out of this moment looking righteous. They don't come out of this moment looking like they have their lives together. They don't walk out of this moment looking credible. They come out of this moment looking drunk. God shows up into the unexpected moment with the disciples, and it is their uncertainty, it is their liminality, it is all those things that we have named it to be, but then the way God shows up is unexpected and uncomfortable. And that's maybe the most important truth that we would understand today as a church is that yes, God is on the move first, before, after, around us, in us, despite us, with us. True, but it does not look like we expect and it rarely looks like we want. God is on the move ahead and before us, but it does not look like our expectations or even our desires. I cannot imagine the disciples are pumped with the reputation they gained after Acts 2. And yet, it is God's movement. And this is important for us to understand for our own sake, just as we evaluate what's happening in our own lives. It's important for us to understand as we think about what it means for us but I think it's also so important as we are observers of what's happening around us because I think we as Christians are very good at deciding what is and what is not the movement of God. 
We're very good at being like, no, they're drunk. That's too messy to be what God is doing when the mess is actually the evidence that God is fermenting some new imitation of the kingdom of God. Get a little Pentecostal in here. It's like my roots are coming up. I like it. We're very good at judging and deciding and determining what is and what is not the kingdom. And so that's why this truth is so important. God is on the move, and it is in ways we do not expect. And we have to wrestle with the truth that it is in ways we often do not want. And so before we judge it as drunk, before we wipe it away, before we distance ourselves from it, we have to be real humble and patient to approach what we may say is not a movement of God to evaluate whether it truly is or not. And so I think it leads us with a really important question, which is, can we as the church expand our expectations for what is God's work? And can we lay aside some of our assumptions about what is and what is not God's work? Does it mean we're undiscerning? talk about that in the weeks to come. Discernment is incredibly important. But can we lay aside some of our expectations or can we expand our expectations and lay aside some of our assumptions when it comes to discerning what is and what is not God's work? Because if you read the story of the Bible, this is one of the most consistent problems the people of God have. Rejecting what it is that God is doing. Read the book of Acts. It takes like seven different meetings to decide that Gentiles can be included in the church because the Christians cannot imagine God would want that to be true. And are we so arrogant to believe that we don't do the same thing today? The same thing that Peter did? The same thing that James did? The same thing that John did? The the disciples who were with Jesus? So can we expand our expectations and let go of some of our assumptions to truly discern what it is that God is up to? That leads to the second truth. God is on the move in ways that are unexpected and sometimes undesired. And number two, God is forming unexpected people into a community. The next moment in this story from Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon 3,000 people convert to be followers of Jesus. It's like a crazy, beautiful moment. And then immediately afterwards, this is the description that is given, verse 42 through 44. It says, Those who had come to believe, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And here's the part that I think is very fascinating. All the believers were together— and had everything in common. That line is amazing to me. Everything in common. Because in no way is that practically true. The whole story before this is that they don't even speak the same language as the people who are coming to know Jesus in that moment. So not only do they not speak the same language, they come from different cultures, they come from different ethnicities, there are Gentiles and Jews who have not been worshiping together at all and have been intentionally excluding one another from fellowship. There's people with 
vastly different political ideologies, people who love Rome and people who want to overthrow Rome, in no practical way do the people who are called the community in this moment have everything in common. So much of them would be opposed to one another. So much of them would be different than one another that they would not have it in common. And yet that is exactly what God seems to love to do. Form communities of unexpected people into something common. The Bible scholar Willie Jennings in his commentary on Acts says this really, really beautifully, summing up the big contention and big problem of the book of Acts. He says this, Acts renders the Gentiles, non-Jewish believers, as a profound question to the Jewish people. What will you do if I join you at the body of Jesus and fall in love with your God and even with you? This is the most terrifying aspect of the interruption of love. Missio, God is on the move, and the product of God's movement is a community that doesn't make any sense. A community that has no right belonging to one another, who is forced to ask each other the question, what will you do if I love the same God that you love? And what if I even begin to love you despite all the reasons I shouldn't? What might happen to us if I'm interrupted by love? And it is not a community that ignores distinction or barriers to belonging. It doesn't just wipe them away or hide them. No, the, the truth is the church is constantly having to wrestle with all of the realities that would stop a community from belonging together. Even in Peter's sermon in this section of Scripture that we had read to us, he says this thing, which is beautiful. He's quoting from the prophet Joel, and he says to explain what's happening, to explain why everybody looks drunk, he says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, it's a beautiful thing to say, but in the moment that it comes, it was so offensive. Women were not allowed into the inner circles of the temple. So to be told that they were going to have the full access of the presence of God to a group of conservative listeners would be like, what? You did what now? And to say that the Spirit would be on all people, including Gentiles, would be offensive to people who have gatekeeped access to the presence of God. To say that differently abled people could enter the temple the same way that Jewish men could, that's a controversial phrase in the ancient world. And so Peter's very message, his very proclamation that the Spirit has been poured out on all peoples is the challenging and terrifying interruption of love. And for the church to gather together, for us to be a common people united by Jesus, we have to wrestle with what does it mean to be common when all are empowered. And this is not just a byproduct of God's movement in the world, 
a happy second chance. It is God's movement in the world. God is on the mission to form people into a community. Theologian David Fitch says it really succinctly just like this. God's plan is to become present to the world in and through a people. And then to invite the world to join with. Whether that was Abraham, the family in Genesis chapter 12, Israel in Exodus 19, or the church in Acts chapter 2, God always moves first, forms a people that don't make any sense, and then through that people begins to show the world what does it look like to be interrupted by love. And what if you joined in? What if you were invited too? See, in learning to be a common people who live in common, we invite the world to participate. Paul will say we become ambassadors of the kingdom. He could call us body of Christ. Ephesians 2, we are a living temple. Each is getting at the same idea that as a people who are wrestling with the things that should not unite us, we begin to witness to the world what God is doing. That leads to number three. So God is on the move. God forms us into a people. Number three, we, those people, have been empowered and invited to participate in the work that God is doing. We, those people, have been empowered and invited to participate in the things that God is doing. I think many of us believe this, Many of us want to believe this, but there is some very difficult myths that we have to overcome in order to really allow ourselves to participate in the work that God is doing. I was talking to somebody recently about like becoming a house church leader, and they were like, I don't think I can be a house church leader. And I was like, why not? And they were like, well, I don't feel like I know enough to be a house church leader. Like, I don't feel like I can answer everybody's questions, or I could wrestle with everybody's doubts, or I could give like erudite answers to everyone's questions. And I was like, hold on a second. You just said erudite. You're the smartest person I know. You're going to be fine. But I think that statement really reveals often how we think about what it looks like to join God's work, that there is some level of information, some level of resourcing, some level of knowledge that we must have before we're allowed, before we're able, before we're capable of participating in what God is doing. There's this story in Acts chapter 4, which is just happens just like minutes after the one in Acts chapter 2. And Peter and John, the disciples, they're before the religious leaders, and they give an amazing speech. They do this amazing thing, and then uh, what I love is how the religious leaders respond. They throw so much shade. Verse 13. It says, when the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. I love that all of that happens in the same passage. Unschooled, ordinary. They're not educated, they don't seem all that capable, and yet something about them was astonishing because they had been with Jesus. We think we need to be educated or prepared to participate in the work that God is doing. And those things are great. They're helpful. They're amazing. I truly believe that. 
But I think in some ways they can often become tools we use to manage what God is doing versus participate in what God is doing. And the skills that we need the most is not education, it's not experience. The skills that we need the most, I think, to participate in the work that God is doing is humility and attentiveness. It is a willingness to be surprised by the unexpected things that God is doing. It is the humility to look at the drunk apostles and disciples and be like, hold on a second, is something happening here? It doesn't fit my expectations. It does not fit my norms. It does not fit the way I often think about God or God's work, but I am going to pay attention and be surprised, or at least be willing to be surprised. There's another moment I love from the book of Acts. It comes in Acts chapter 8, and you have Philip, a disciple of Jesus, and he's been doing ministry in Jerusalem, which is the heart of all religious activity for the early church. That's where the church is born. That's where the Pentecost moment happens. That's where they're gathering. The councils are happening in Jerusalem. Everything important is happening in Jerusalem at this moment. And God comes to Philip, and he's like, hey, dude, um, I want you to leave Jerusalem for a bit and just take this desert road to Gaza, to a nowhere town, really, at that time. Philip was like, okay, legit, I'll go. That's what I said. And as he's going on the road, he runs into uh, an Ethiopian man who is reading stories about Jesus which is a wild thing to encounter on the road. Like, you leave the place where stories of Jesus are being told. You are on the road away from the center of religious activity, away from the center of power, away from the center of influence, away from all the things that you would want to be a participant in as, like, a good Christian church leader. And as you're on the road, you find a guy who is somehow reading stories about Jesus, and he's asking questions and asking for help to understand those stories. What a marvelous surprise to find on the road outside of your expectations. And nothing about this story shows us that Philip is uniquely capable. It shows us that he is attentive and humble, that he was willing to let go of some assumptions and trust God's activity. He was willing to be humble enough and attentive enough that he would leave his expectations, and leave his assumptions to meet God on the road. I think one of the greatest failures of our modern Christian imagination is a failure to see or believe that God is at work everywhere. That God is at work everywhere, that God is at work as much in places we would never think of as God is at work in the places we know God is at work. That God is truly at work everywhere. Instead, we believe that God is at work in Jerusalem more than other places, that God is at work uniquely in this space, like a Sunday space, more than in our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our family places or our jobs. Do I believe that God is at work in Jerusalem? Yes. Amen. 
Do I believe that God is at work on Sundays? Yes, and amen. But the same presence that greets you at this table is the same one that waits for you at a dinner table with your family, is the same one that is waiting in your office table, is the same one that is in the cafeteria. The same presence, the same activity, the same working of God in Jerusalem is waiting for Philip on the desert road outside the center of power and authority and expectations. And I think because we don't really believe that, we don't really go looking for it. We chase back into this space because we're like, I need all the God I can get. And God's like, what are you talking about? I'm everywhere. Just waiting for you to pay attention. Waiting for you to hear me invite you into more. Waiting for you to join me on the desert road and in Jerusalem. Not one versus the other, but in both places. There's this really uh, beautiful Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote where he asked this question. He was delivering a sermon, uh, and if you, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story is fascinating. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is an activist in Nazi Germany during World War II trying to resist the Nashi regime, and he's giving a sermon to Christians that he doesn't feel are adequately motivated to participate in that resistance. The church didn't do great in Nazi Germany. And Dietrich asked this question. He says, why is the church so boring? Because in the end, we ourselves do not want to believe that God is really here among us right now. What a fascinating thing for him to say. As Bonhoeffer struggled against the church that he felt was complicit, the thing he walked away with is like, oh, you don't really believe that God is at work. Because if you did, you'd, you'd get to work too. Knowing that God meets you and invites you everywhere you are. This returns us to that first question. Do you really believe that God is at work in the world around you, inviting you to participate? Do you believe that you have everything you need to participate? You just have to pay attention and listen. And this leads us to our final truth, which is really a summation of all the ideas that we've said so far, which is this. Church is a people who together experience and participate in God's renewing work. Church is a people, this unexpected community who is finding a way through the interruption of love to be shared, to be in common, who experience and participate in God's work together. Before we are an institution called Missio Dei, we are a people of God's mission. Before and after we are a Sunday gathering, we are invited to experience and participate in God's work. Yes, in the Sunday gathering and everywhere else around us. It's what it means to be the church. The people who together experience and participate in the work that God is doing. That's our vision, our purpose, our mission as a community of faith. 
to join what God is already up to in the world around us. To put practice to that belief. And to, like Philip, go hunting on desert roads for the activity of God we know is already at work. And we do that here as we gather in this space. Yes, this trains us to do it in every other space. But we don't let that stay in this place. We leave here from a Sunday, enter into a Monday, just as convinced that God is waiting for us wherever we go as we believe God was waiting for us here and now in this place. Missy, do you believe that? Do you want to? Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we today thank you that you are on the move. That you are at work seeding the kingdom, bringing it to harvest. That you are uniting us despite our differences and our barriers, that you're upending exclusionary things, that you're healing us, transforming us, changing us, leading us into, through you. God, that idea is so beautiful, and yet it is also deeply challenging. And so today, I don't know what everybody in this room needs. I don't even know what I need, but would you just work on us the same way you did on the disciples in the upper room to maybe be a bit more attentive, a bit more humble than we were before so that we might start to listen and look and pay attention to where you are and who you're with. God, we believe that you'll meet us tomorrow. We believe that you'll meet us tomorrow. So help us pay attention. Help us to come looking. And help us to be humble enough to accept it. And thank you that even if we don't, you'll still meet us tomorrow. We pray this in your wonderful, holy name. Amen. Monsieur, when you're ready, I invite you to this table. We gather at it every single week because Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. And as we gather at this table and as we celebrate the work and accomplishment and victory of Jesus, it actually prepares us to participate in God's work at this table, but in all the tables of our lives. So in the same way as we meet God surrounded by unexpected people here, well, tonight when you have dinner with your friends and your family, the same presence is waiting for you. As you go to your office tomorrow and have lunch with coworkers, the same presence is waiting for you. We practice it here so we can participate in it everywhere else. So when you're ready, come to the table and continue to worship.